tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Hey. Oh, it's hot. The mic, that is. Hello. <laughs> uh, I'm here, mostly. I hope you are. Is your oven hot, <laughs> too, that. Father? Don't touch that when it's hot. You're not supposed no, to. No, no. No, the voice in my head is saying, is the oven hot, too? No, no. That it's was quite cold where I am. Oh, oh you see it. I can never tell. <laughs> What's that line from, I think it's the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy. Pardon me, but... Are the voices in my head bothering you? At any rate, let's pray in the name of the Father. He's not bothering anybody. He's great help. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. And as, and as promised, I will explain what a zoophyte is. Okay. Um, uh, there was a certain man. This is <laughs> the voice. My just said, "I take that for his. I take that for his allergies." First uh, Samuel, the first chapter, first verse. There was a, this, this is a wonderful story. The, the next three books of the Bible, uh, are, are just a wonderful story. And I'll include the next four. First and second Samuel, uh, then first and second Kings. Used to be in the, uh, Dewey Reams, it was, um, uh, was it, oh gosh, I think it was, um, the four books of Kings. It was just, uh, four books of Kings, but then, you know, things have modernized. But let's, well, not really modernized. The, the, the ecumenical drives of the 60s and 70s uh, reasonably said, well, at least we can call the books of the Bible by the same name. But moving along. There was a certain man from Ramathaim. Ramathaim was a place in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, remember Ephraim. Uh, this, is, this is important stuff. Um, it may seem rather unimportant, but it is not. It's quite important. Ephraim was one of the sons of Joseph, who was one of the twelve sons of Jacob slash Israel. And Joseph was not the father of a tribe, he was the father of two half-tribes, named for his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. And these two tribes came to symbolize all of the northern tribes. When you see in the Bible, Ephraim, it means the northern the northern part of what is now the state of Israel 
the northern part of the Holy Land, where the the tribes that ultimately became the ten lost tribes, so-called, uh, were found. They weren't actually ten. It was sort of like bits and pieces. Ah, never mind. I can barely count anyway. All right, moving along. Uh, so this was a fellow from Ramathaim, which was in the hill country of Ephraim, uh, of the north. And um, he was a Zophite. Well, what's a Zophite? Well, it kind of explains. He was the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Why, what is that list of names? I, I don't know if you've ever thought about surnames, you know, your last name. Where is it from? Everybody thinks my last name is uh, Jewish. It's well. It's the word is Jewish, but it was a it was a, a common name in Europe in the Middle Ages, and it was probably one Simmons with an S from Simonson, son of Simon. So it was that son of thing. But in the Middle East, this was terribly important and still is. You gotta know your genealogy because you're related to people and you have familial obligations. So if I come up to you and I say that I am. Uh, I am Elkanah uh, ben Yehoram ben Elihu ben Tohu ben Suf. Oh, we're cousins. I shouldn't. I should be nice to you. The desert climate, all that sort of thing. It's very rough. Life anywhere is rough. So you want to know someone else's genealogy to know your responsibility to them as a kinsman. Uh, we don't think of it in English. It's just a legal identifier. And it's very interesting that that um, uh, uh, surnames weren't really introduced in England until, um, you know, and uh, we are an English-speaking people, no matter our ethnicity. They weren't introduced into the English-speaking world, shall we say, until uh, 1086, given or take, in the Doomsday Book. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Doomsday Book. When the Normans... Uh, invaded England, the Norman French from from uh, um, Normandy in northwest France. They invaded England, claimed the throne. Uh, uh, you know, William the Conqueror, 1086. <clears throat> he decided, or well, I think it was a 1082. In 1086, he they he had compiled a book that counted every last sheep, every last cow, every last inch of farmland, every last kitchen pot so that he knew the status of everyone and whom he could charge what in terms of taxes. It was, it was so complete, this book, so thorough, that it was thought of as the book that would be read on the Day of Judgment, the Doomsday Book. Uh, it was that complete. So, in, yeah, Doomsday, yeah, the voice might just said Doomsday is about taxes. It most certainly is. It's coming up, isn't it? So, uh, this, the, the, the surnames were, were adopted among the feudal nobility and, and gentry of England. And slowly other people, uh, picked them up. Uh, some of the early, uh, Normans who came to England, um, had a territorial name, uh, uh, or attained a name that indicated their, their uh, um, their ownership of a, of a village or something, and eventually it spread. Uh, so by the by the 1400s, um, <clears throat> you could be called John the Butcher or John Chandler. That was the guy who slaughtered animals, or the guy Chandler was the guy who made candles. Trade names were very very common, like Smith. Well, you're a Smith, so that's where last names come from. But in the Middle East, you have this Ben business. 
not to emphasize where you are from, as in uh, European names or or um, your trade, but to indicate your relationships. That's that's where Middle Eastern surnames come from. So they don't have surnames the way we think of them. Uh, I think that's interesting, but then again, I don't get out much. So let's get back to the scriptures. He had two wives. Well, there's another another roadblock to stumble over. Yes, well, they had more than one wife in the in the Old Testament. Why can't we have more than one wife now? Well, because, again, Jesus said it was not that way in the beginning. For this, a man leaves his mother and father and clings to his woman, and the two become one flesh. The way God designed human relationships is monogamous, from, we believe, from the Garden of Eden. And the Lord is restoring us from our fallen state in Christ to, to the, the garden. I think this is a real important thing. You know, well, God changed his mind. That was okay in the Old Testament. It's not okay in the New Testament. It was never okay in the Old Testament. But God, remember, is a good fisherman. He reels the fish in as slowly as he needs to and as quickly as he can. The human race, after the fall of Adam and Eve, were completely barbarized. They they were murderous and left to their own devices. They still are. You want to see what life is like without Christ? Go visit Pompeii, the ruins of Pompeii, in which you find the the corpses of slaves still chained to the walls. Uh, you, you see the the, the 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 houses of prostitution, the slave quarters, uh, the the arena in which people were killed for the amusement of the crowd. Left to our own devices, we are barbaric. Uh, so many people blame Christianity for the wars. Uh, for wars and crusades, <clears throat> and certainly where there were human beings involved, there were there were excesses. But there is a book, a very interesting book. Uh, I think it's uh, printed in French, uh, the li- the little black book of communism, uh, and it details. It's a book written by communists, and it details the hundreds of millions of people killed by people like Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Stalin. Lenin, that 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 we remember with great horror what Hitler did, and rightly so. But history has has sort of papered over uh, far far more numerous holocausts, uh, and they're not we're not done yet. When left without Christ, we are savage, and so. This idea of, well, it's what they did in the Old Testament. No, the Lord is drawing us forward. It's called abrogation, that the New Testament abrogates these things because uh, we are are, uh, being drawn closer to paradise. Jesus says it was not that way in the beginning. That's what we're going for. That's why, you know, the Old Testament says an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. That was an improvement. You poke my eye, I'm going to kill your family. No, eye for an eye. And then Jesus tightens the the restriction. He he brings us back to the forgiveness of paradise by saying, "What I say to you is, uh, uh, do not resist." In that sense, do not resist the evildoer. So, moving along, boy, we got a lot to talk about. Dan, I sure talk a lot. The man regularly went to pilgrimage uh, to Shiloh. The first temple was in Shiloh. Now, whether it was just the tent of meeting moved around or if there was an actual building, probably there was an actual building there. Interesting excavations being done at Shiloh, which is uh, 
uh, I think Shiloh's a little north of Jerusalem, a little closer to the, the uh, Jordan River. Um, so uh, that's where the Ark was kept uh, after they had conquered, mostly conquered the land. There were two sons of Eli, Hophni and, and some people pronounce it Phineas or Pincus or Phinehas. I'm going to call him Phineas. Eli, Hophni, and Phineas. They were ministering as priests of the Lord. Eli was the high priest. Hophni and Phineas were the, the ministering, were his sons. And uh, Elkanah used to go out for sacrifice, and uh, he would give a portion of the sacrifice, the communion sacrifice. You know, some of the meat went to, was burned on the altar, some was given to the priest, and some was given back to the celebrant, or to the uh, offerer in certain sacrifices. This was not a holocaust. The holocaust was where the entire sacrifice was burnt on the altar. Uh, but no, this was a, a kind of communion sacrifice. So uh, <clears throat> he used to give a portion each to his wife Penina, to all her sons and daughters, but a double portion to Hannah because he loved her and she had no children. Now the idea was, and I, I've shared this before, and it's it's nonsense, it's not true, uh, that... that um, they judged a woman who had no children, who was married, uh, as being cursed by God. And this is not true. Uh, in the New Testament, we, we talk about, and we mean it, we talk about spiritual motherhood, spiritual fatherhood. So, uh, but of course, Penina really razzed Hannah about this. And he said, I love you. Isn't that more than 10 sons? Well, apparently it wasn't to Hannah which, by the way, means a gift from God. Now let's go to the Gospel. Mark, the first chapter, uh, the 14th verse and 20. Um, just very briefly on this. Um, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Now, people have said much that, well, clearly uh, the, the early church expected uh, an immediate return of Christ and uh, Jesus himself uh, said the the kingdom is is uh, at hand, and they completely, I think, misunderstand the, the the meaning of the kingdom. Now, of course, you forgive me if you're a regular listener. This is a horse that I I ride frequently. The kingdom of God, the the word for kingdom is basilia, and it means royal nature, kingliness. Kingliness is something you inherit. You're, you you can't uh, buy it. You can't. Uh, um, that's one of the things with Herod. He actually kind of went and bought his kingliness. And he wasn't a king. And the, the Magi coming into the palace in Jerusalem looked at this man and thought, there's nothing royal about him. Uh, and he wasn't. He was, a, he was a, a, a ward boss who was a thug. And he had um, conned the Romans into giving him the status of a king. So... This 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 nature of kingliness wasn't in Herod, but it was in Jesus, and the Magi recognized it. So, the what we read is the the moment, the Kairos. There's there's Chronos, which means the passage of time. There's Kairos, which means the moment. The time has been fulfilled. The moment has been fulfilled, and then it says, you know, the kingdom of God is near. No, it's not. Is near. Has drawn near. The royal, God's royal, the way I read it, God's royal nature has drawn near. So repent and trust in the good news. What good news? That the kingdom, the God's royal nature is drawn near. All right, let's look at that a little more closely. 
I, I love to point out, Jesus said, "You, I will not taste the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. Well, that meant that Jesus was going to come back and they were all going to have a big party and, and drink. No. When did Jesus drink the fruit of the vine? On the cross when they offered him the the uh, the cheap wine, the, the basically vinegar, which was the product of the grape. Uh, they offered him a kind of vinegar mixed with water on the cross, and he drank it, and he said, it is finished. It's done. That was the kingdom of God. The cross was the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus was showing you his royal nature. This is what God is like, that he loved us so much that he stretched out his arms on the cross and died. That's how much God loves you. That's God's royal nature. And when Jesus said, God's royal nature has drawn near, he said, here I am. Look at me. You want to know what God is like? Look at me. First, or the letter to Colossians, first chapter. He is the visible image of the invisible God. You want to see what God is like? Look at a Jewish carpenter. That's, that's what God is like. And so um, he says, repent. And I've, I've shared with you the past week what repent means. It means have a new understanding. Quit thinking of God's royal nature as when we conquer everyone and they get theirs and we're on top. And I get what I want. That's the kingdom of God. When the when 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 in heaven I'm going to have a golden mansion and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. That's not the kingdom. That's not God's royal nature. You want to get to know what God is like. That's the good news. It is near to you who are poor, you who are afflicted, you who are depressed, you who are unimportant in the eyes of the world. That God's royal nature is not far from you. You know, you don't have to go to a palace or a the White House, or some great boardroom to encounter God's royal nature. You can encounter it wherever you are. This is good news. Trust the good news. So uh, let, let God change your mind about what's really important and what's really royal and noble and beautiful. You know, the, that, that what we think is royal and noble and beautiful is not what God thinks is royal and noble and beautiful. It really is. You know, that, that, that the poor man is as lovely to God as the richest of the rich, and perhaps more so if the poor man is kind to his neighbor. Um, let God change your mind about these things. That's why Jesus says God's royal nature has drawn near. Let God change your understanding. Do not persist in this illusion about power and wealth and money and importance God's got a way of doing it that is far better. All right, we are going to go to a break. We'll come back with letters, and we will open the phones at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. We will be right back, God willing. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Well, hello. Let us go to letters. I have gotten a number of responses uh, on my request for guidance about uh, IV 
intravenous fluids, uh, um, intravenous fluids, and someone who is terminally ill. Now, this one is from uh, I won't uh, from someone named Rick, and um, I don't want to uh, be too specific, but. This is a physician's assistant and a registered nurse, uh, 20 years of experiencing. And he says, you got to remember the financial situation of hospice. They, they typically take it at a fixed price and have a desire to minimize the length of, of treatment. And he says, when my father went to hospice, uh, I was literally yelled at when I requested IV fluids. After I was allowed one liter of fluids, I promptly took my father back to the hospital. He was very comfortable for the few days he was treated in the hospital with both morphine and IV fluids. You are correct. It is immoral to starve a human being to death, regardless of whether they are comatose or not. Um, starving a human increases pain. IV fluids do not increase pain. Now, this is pain. This is from Rick. Now, I, I've gotten quite a number of these, and I really want to look at, at, at uh, all of them. This one is is from Terry. And um, let's see here. Uh, this is uh, uh, Terry in regards to the original show um, regarding use of fluids at the end of life. I just retired after 20 years as a palliative nurse practitioner, uh, caring predominantly for patients at the end of life. A palliative means to lessen, you know, it's it's care given that is not. Uh, uh, going to cure you, but it's going to make you more comfortable to palliate something. It's a, it's an interesting verb. If fluids can't be, uh, this is, this is very interesting. Oh, did I forget the, the word of the day? No, word of the days later. That's, that, I just heard a voice in my head. Oh no, no, palliative is not going to be a word of the day. I'm, I'm doing, uh, uh, begotten. So, but it would not be a bad word of the day. But um, let's get back to the fluids. The fluids can't be eliminated. They back up just like any plumbing problem. Uh, push fluids out of the weakest spot, uh, which is the body's often the lungs. I've had horrifying responsibility to try to ameliorate breathing problems thus, thus caused. With end-stage... With end-stage dementia, by definition, the patient is at end-stage. As they've turned away from food and drink, they will refuse to open their mouths when offered food and drink. This is interesting. The dying body, unless in cases of sudden death, shuts down bit by bit. You tolerated IV fluids well as you weren't dying when you received them. Care of the dying is really different from care of patients. Well, that is fascinating, and I'm grateful, Terry. Now, I'm, this I've, I've got more of these. They're wonderful. Uh, let's see here. This is not it. Okay. Uh, I got uh, one from uh, a doctor. Uh, I'll just say a doctor. Um, uh, as a retired physician who has extensive volunteer experience in hospice care, I was dismayed to hear you advocate for feeding tubes and IV fluids at the end of life. I didn't so much advocate for feeding tubes. This info uh, found on Sanford Health News is a nice summary. Nutrition is a big part of our lives. Often feeding and preparing meals for a loved one are a way of showing care. Uh, one of the hardest things for a caregiver to accept is when a dying person no longer eats or drinks enough to stay alive. But as the body changes, not wanting to eat or drink is a natural response. Food may not taste as good. Liquids may be preferred. It's common for hard-to-digest foods such as meats to be the first foods that the person rejects. People are terminally, terminally ill are often not hungry. 
Those who do become hungry only need small amounts of food or fluid. So what I'm uh, uh, understanding here um, uh, that that um, um, there are there are well I, I guess one size doesn't fit all. You know that that uh, the the most sage advice I got about this issue was from Archbishop Lestecki in Milwaukee. I, I asked him about this, and he said. What is the person going to die of? Now, if if a hospice program or uh, something wants to restrict fluids, such as IV fluids, to save money, that's intensely immoral. That's murder. However, if a person cannot take liquids, you know, for instance, as as a number of professionals have said here, that that as the kidneys shut down, as as different organs shut down. To to fill a, a a body with liquid, it's going to come out in the lungs, which is so. It's 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 one size does not fit all. Um, this is a really tough issue. You you can't deny food and water to a person, but I can see the point when a person refuses food and water. There's an old Russian proverb that uh, um, uh, she put down her spoon. In other words, she stopped eating. Uh, she could no longer eat. Uh, that's different than denying uh, food and water. So the Catholic position is very clear. You may not deny hydration or nutrition. But on the other hand, I'm not sure. And if there is an ethicist listening who's a good Catholic ethicist, I would love to hear from them. But um, if you, to deny people food and water is is extremely immoral. But when a person cannot take food or water, you're not denying that to them. So what is the person dying of? The shutdown of organs or from starvation and thirst? It is grossly immoral to starve a person or to cause them to die of thirst. It is not grossly immoral to allow them to go home to the Lord when their body is shutting down. And this takes discernment. It takes good ethical doctors and nurses. And I got one more letter that I very much wanted to read. Uh, you know, that now this is not universally true, uh, but um, uh, the, uh, uh, hold on, let me see if I find this letter. Um, uh, let's see, um, there's one from, an, I believe, another nurse, which is essentially saying that, but Oh, gosh, I wish I could remember this. Oh, good grief. Where'd it go? It was a fine commentary on this, which I, of course, forgotten. The train is off the tracks here in my mind. The uh, But uh, so that's that's kind of the, 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 the rule of thumb is what are they going to die of? Are they going to die of starvation and thirst or are they going to die of this this process of shutting down? So, again, thanks for those who have contributed to this, and uh, I apologize if I have said anything that is untrue, and I apologize even more if I've said anything which isn't Catholic doctrine. Uh, but uh, that's an interesting perspective, that there comes a point at which the body is not capable of of absorbing liquid or food. So, um, uh Oh, that was that was what what the letter was about. I, I can't find the letter, but someone said, you know, there's not a lot of training in in the medical field about dying. 
you know, the medical field, they're trying to keep you alive. And, um, you know, I was briefly, it was my, my, my internship before I was ordained. I was a, a chaplain in a, in a, a hospital, a very fine hospital. But um, the doctors, when a kid was going to die, this was a children's hospital, when the kid was going to die, the doctors were just at a loss. I mean, they were trained to, to keep him alive, uh, not to admit defeat in death. And so it is, the letter said that often nurses are much more aware of when a person is clearly going to die. Uh, when, when, uh, now that, that was an exception in, in my case with, and not in my personal case, but in my mom's case, doctor called me and said, your mom's going to die today. And I, I went to the hospital. She seemed fine. He called it on the minute. Uh, he was an old guy who was just very precise. So there are many doctors who are quite adept at this. And if you have a doctor who is that knowledgeable, you're very blessed. But in general, nurses are the ones who are kind of hands-on, uh, um, especially in our times. And, uh, you know, if you have a good, devout Christian nurse, um, then I would talk to her about these things if you're in that situation. Um, you know, uh, if they want to clear out the bed, beware. But if they want to, to do the right thing, well, you know, I've known so many nurses who I think are saints. All right, enough with that. Let me look at the time. Oh, we got time for a few more letters. Let's see here. This one is, uh, yeah, good grief. Okay. Oh, this is from Steve, who I actually know in L.A., and he's commenting on the food and water issue, too. Um, <clears throat> his dad had been a deacon who uh, uh, visited hospitals and nursing homes a lot, and uh, he accompanied him once. And he, his dad gave him some interesting advice. He said, if you want to know, oh, this is the letter. If you want to know how long a terminal patient has, uh, ask the nurses. They're with the patients day in and day out and can recognize the symptoms leading up to death. So, uh, uh, Steve, uh, 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 thanks um, uh, for your note. He says, I lived that experience with my mom. The hospice people told us to stop feeding her because her body was shutting down. I had to admit they were correct in that case. One of my cousins came by when nobody else was around, gave my mom some food. Her body rejected the food. So, again, you're sensitive to the individual case. Uh, um, that... that uh, I think you're in, in good shape if you have a hospice nurse who is a good and caring uh, believer. So, again, Steve, thanks so much. Uh, and uh, uh, it was uh, it's good to hear from you. God bless. Somebody I actually know from, from a wedding I was at. All right. Moving along here. What time is it? Um, I, I, do call in. I, I, I've been wanting to take more phone calls. I talk so much. But 888-914-9169. 888-914-9169. I'm sorry. I, I don't ignore what I just said to you. 888-914-9149. Eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. We'll come back with a word of the day, and I hope you're not calling some pizza parlor in Schenectady. Oh, if you don't love God, if you don't love your neighbor, if you gossip about him, if you never have mercy, if he gets into trouble and you don't try to help him, then you don't love your neighbor, and you don't love. Well, hello. How you doing? If you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. Ain't it the truth? Preach it, brother. Preach it. All right. Let us go to the word of the day. 
The word of the day comes from Anna. And simple question. Can you please explain the word begotten, begotten by God? I have a hard time grasping it. And uh, I know Anna, and she's pretty smart. <laughs> if she has a hard time grasping it, I don't know that I'm going to do any better. But uh, I'll give it a shot. Uh, the word, the word uh, uh, begotten in Greek, in English it means to exclusively to, to uh, well, not exclusively, but it means to engender in a, a, a physical way, but... Um, it's a little more technical in Greek. It's from the verb ginomai, which can mean to happen. But the word, I think, is related most closely or most well, best understood by our relationship to the word gene. Uh, that that uh, I think that they are essentially uh, related, but uh, I'm stepping on a thin ice here. But this idea of only begotten uh, really does mean that the very nature and substance uh, of the thing comes from its its producer. For instance, an apple tree always produces apples. It never produces, for instance, bananas, at least not in my experience. So that, that something that flows from the nature, and it... it, it it is the nature of the apple tree to produce the apple. You don't have to reason with an apple tree to produce apples. It will do it if it's a healthy apple tree. So this idea of 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 only begotten or the word begotten in Greek, uh, it, it's 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 not quite what we mean by begotten. Uh, when you see in the scriptures the 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 word. Uh, uh, it says such and such begot such and such who begot such and such. That's pretty easy to understand. That means to engender. But this idea of only begotten, it's it's monogenes. And um, uh, it has to do with with the, well, it's kind of, oh gosh, it's, it's a really difficult word because it can also mean unique. Uh, it means specific to a certain kind of thing. So I don't know, Anne, if I'm explaining this at all, but when something produces another thing simply by its own nature, in other words, Jesus is the, um, the very product of the nature of the Father, that there isn't a different nature, just as the the apple is is a form of the apple tree. You know, it's a variation of of the wood of the apple tree. Uh, now, the, uh, in your note, Anna, you mentioned that you went to uh, Paris la Monial in France, which is, of course, the home of Saint Mary Margaret Alacoque, um, who uh, had the vision of the Sacred Heart, and. I've shared with you the idea that there are different ways to describe the Trinity. The absolute best is, of course, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you can describe them less perfectly by talking about um, uh, the breather, the breath, and the word breathed. In order to speak a word, you have to breathe. Jesus is the word of God. The Father, breathing out the Holy Spirit, spoke the word which is Christ. That's one way to look at it. You can also look at it as as uh, the heart. 
You know, I've shared this, that what is our heart, if not our children, those of us who, who have children, I don't, but, you know, that that um, that my parishioners and, and other people whom I had a spiritual relationship could be called my heart. Um, what is your heart, if not your children? And um, the, the God gave us his own heart. I, I've shared that so often that I'm completely intrigued by Eucharistic miracles, that when they, they test this this flesh, which is seems to have originally started as a piece of bread, uh, it's invariably uh, heart tissue. So what God puts in your hand in Holy Communion in the Eucharist is not simply the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It's the sacred heart, uh, a devotion which began in Paris la Moniale in France. And, and um, the heart, uh, this wonderful gift that God puts in 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 our in our hands is his own the heart of his heart it is his own son it is his very word but these things are his we're his children by adoption not by nature so so when something is begotten it takes the nature of the begetter and uh, to think of it simply in reproductive terms in the human sense is 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 less than than the Greek word implies. So I hope that helps a little. But this idea of of God giving us His heart, giving us His very nature in the Eucharist, I think is a very important spiritual concept. All right, let's go to phone calls. Ahoy. Janet from San Diego. What can I do for you, Janet? Uh, hi, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Um, because oh, of the confusion uh, between what? Go on. I was just thinking you're where it's perfectly okay. beautiful and warm. I'm looking at snow, but go on. <laughs> oh, I'll forgive well, it's a you. Cold All right, you know, but, uh, it's not snow. <laughs> anyway, um, I just want because of the confusion between rock and rock in uh, in in Greek, and you know, one being pebble and one being uh, a big rock. Some people use that as an excuse to say that uh, Peter is not the head of the church. Yeah. That, that being said, my question is to the um, meaning of the word this, when uh, Christ says, this is my body, and do this in memory of me. Are those two words the same? Is there some a difference in um, the words as they're used in Greek as opposed to what they were would have been said in Aramaic? Hmm. And how can we use that as a um, as an argument to say that that the there is, Jesus is truly present in the in the uh, Holy Eucharist? Okay. Well, let's question. look at this. Luke twenty two nineteen. Let's look at this word. Um, uh, he said, uh, tuta, which means this, this thing, uh, this thing is my body. Now, uh, do this thing, the same exact word, do this, uh, as my anemnesis. Now, an anemnesis is a very interesting thing. That's what the, my memory, I think that's in a way, uh, the word to look at, um, an anemnesis is is a, a, a remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. However, uh, it meant more than that. For instance, the Egyptians uh, had a, a, a saying, mention my name and I am present. Uh, that, that the mentioning of the name was was made 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 it real. Now the um, 
the, in Hebrew, the word is zikor, and it's the same idea in Hebrew. Let me see if I can find that zikor in Hebrew. Let me click it in there. Okay, uh, your zikr, zikr, oh, that's Arabic. I don't want Arabic. Um, okay, zikr on uh, memory. Remember, let me see. Well, this this is going to, okay, I'll click on this one. Okay. It's a reminder, a remembrance, but as I understood it from my discussions with Rabbi Lefkowitz, it was a very powerful thing that the way I was to be made present was was is by this. They have a, a, a synagogue services that involve this this bringing bringing back, and so it's a very powerful thing, which which. Um, I can't find a real good reference, and I'm going to have to do a little research and then maybe make it a word of the day. But it, it, it's a reality. And Jesus was saying, this is the way that I will be present among you. When he says, do this in memory of me, he's saying, this is how I will be present among you. That's, that's literally, I think, what he's saying. So I don't know, does that help a little bit? Uh, yeah, but what was the first meaning of the word? This is my body. Just this is this my thing. Body? This this um, the same thing. This this thing. This this thing that I'm holding. This bread is my yeah. body. Yeah, and okay. and uh, it's 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 a it's it's you know I, I it and means by saying pretty these much words again in the future you are going to be you are creating the same effect. Oh yeah, I, I, it's this. Do this. It's, it's, well, if that's the point you're making. You're absolutely on target. That the this is this. Do this in memory of me. In other words, when he says this is my body, do this in memory of me. I think you're exactly right. And He's saying, is, and then it is my body, just because yeah, you said yeah. it that way. Yeah, I mean he's pretty clear. The real, the real clear text about this, you know, Saint Paul talks about it in First Corinthians, the fifteenth chapter, which precedes the Gospels. They were doing it by fifty A.D. and understanding it that way clearly from Saint Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and then of course John. I mean, he Jesus is very specific about it, and those words were written probably. I think in the 60s or early 70s, there's dispute about it. But no, in the very first days, they understood that Jesus had said this was a reality. This was much more than symbolic. And and the word anemnesis, uh, zikr in Hebrew, is, is a very powerful word. So I don't know if that helps at all. Yeah, well, it helps me because I've got, a, uh, I have a, a friend of mine who uses, like I said, that rock, rock thing that, uh, you know, well, it was pebble in, in Greek. In well, one yeah, form, and that's and not true. Big rock in another. But that's and... not true. Your friend is absolutely mistaken. It's not true. Okay. The word Petra means rock. And if you're going to make a name out of it or a title, it has to be masculinized. You see, Greek and Latin, I tell your friend if they, if they say a little Greek and Latin, there's a little Greek, they might, they might be able to, I shouldn't be smarmy, but I was going to say, Oh, they could read the scriptures if they knew a little Greek, <laughs> but that would be yeah. unkind. Don't do that. <laughs> but uh, you know, the, rest of the Bible anyway. says. But uh... yeah, well, no. People say, "Well, the Bible says." Well, no, no. Your translation of the Bible says, and uh, though it's yeah, it's good, yeah. it's not but perfect. I, I well, the word Petros, the, the word for rock, is, is there's no difference between the two. I mean, there's, there's no difference. Yes, and Kipha. But in it, Greek, it's, there's and, a rock. There's a name for rock that's a pebble, and the name for the rock. And, and no, the big rock. no, that's not true. That's not true. Oh, that's not, that's true. not true. Okay. 
Okay. It's not true. Your friend is is mistaken. That the word Petra okay. means rock. And they masculinize it in order to apply it as a name to a man. And a, 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 a name must have a gender ending in Greek and in Latin. So, uh, no, see. the word P-E-T-R means rock. That's all it means. Uh, and it doesn't mean pebble. Uh, it isn't a diminutive. Uh, 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 it would be Petrion okay. if it was a diminutive. So, no, your friend is mistaken about that, too. So there you go. And have her call in, and I'll discuss it with her <laughs> politely. Well, thanks for calling in. Stay warm and well-fed, as the letter St. James says. Really. All right, God bless. Who have we got now, dear voice in my head? Dr. Cindy from Milwaukee. Doctor, I'm honored that you call. What can I do for you? Hi, yes. Um, you had, I came in somewhat on the uh, the conversation that you were talking about with the end of life issues. Yes, and yes. Not only am I a physician, I'm a bioethicist, and oh. I did work in hospice and nursing homes. So mm -hmm. I'm very familiar with all these end of life issues. Yeah, and, yeah, it's tough. And yeah, and and you know, Dr. Listecki obviously is my ordinary. So he, we, yes. I agree with what he's saying. You know, whatever you. You know, it's what you're going to die from that's important. Yeah, what are you going to die from? You know, mm -hmm. as people get closer to the end of the life, they start to refuse to eat. And if you give them fluids, they get bloated and they get uncomfortable. And and yeah. so you, you want to do everything you can to keep them comfortable. It's what they call proportionate and disproportionate. You know, if it's helping them, you want to continue it. You know, the problem becomes is when you're farther away, such as people with dementia and they stop stop being able to remember to feed themselves yeah you still have to feed uh -huh. them yes but you know at some point when you're talking even about feeding tubes again it becomes proportionate and disproportionate and i put feeding mm -hmm. tubes in people with dementia but there were times when the feeding tube was actually causing discomfort more discomfort mm -hmm. than than the hand feeding so we ended up to have to stop it, even though we knew they weren't yeah. getting quite enough nutrition to maintain their weight. Now, would you say that, that what I said was correct in that um, it is wrong to deny uh, food and liquids to a person, but sometimes when that's different than, than, than forcing it on them. You know, we're not denying it. They can't take it. Would you say that that's yeah, an accurate assessment? Right. Yeah. 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 You would be forcing it on them if, if they can't. You know, if they're not hungry, you know, at the end of life, we feed them for comfort. You know, just yeah. Something, and I don't care what it is. If they're a diabetic and they want lemon meringue pie, they can have all the lemon meringue pie they want. <laughs> uh, you know, that oh yes. Much difference at that point. Yeah. Um, enjoy. But, you know, <laughs> right. Enjoy. But if they're not hungry. You know, if they don't want to eat, it'll force them. It would be cruel because, as you yeah. said, it just come. It comes. You know, it'll come right back up. Yeah, yeah. And offer a spoonful of water. Offer an ice chip. And if they right. they shake their yeah. head, no. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. we got that, swaps that, and things that can help keep the mouth moist. You know, and help keep yes. the mouth comfortable without necessarily giving them a lot of fluids. You know, again, if they just you know it, they may have trouble swallowing. You know, uh, they can aspirate. You know, and, yeah, yeah, oh, so yeah, yeah. You, 
You do yeah, everything you can brother. to keep them comfortable. Yeah. yeah. So while you're assisting them, you know, while they're in the process of dying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so to sum it up, you evaluate what's going to kill them. You know, is the disease going to bring end their life or or is economizing on IVs going to end their life? And having realized that they are at end of life, you you do your best to offer food and hydration, but part of end of life is no longer being able to absorb it. Yeah. So you have to offer it. Yeah. You, you can't force yeah, you, it. You, you, right. You don't do anything that would hasten the process, but you yeah, allow yeah. the process to occur yeah, that's. I think that's very good advice, and and uh, and I think you have to be discerning about about the the staff right. uh, that that's doing yeah. this. You know. Um, oh yeah, yeah. yeah it's you a, do it's a because tough I, thing. I had I had a demented patient in the hospital who was feeding herself prior to admission, but just got too weak to feed herself, and mm-hmm. I wanted to yeah. put in a feeding tube, and got pushback from them. Saying, oh, well, yeah. demented people are going to die anyway. Says, well, not on my watch. This woman's not going to die. You know, she was Bravo. eating. You know, just, yeah. just don't, you know, we're not going to starve her to death. In a few days, yeah. she'll get strong enough and she'll eat. And I was right. Well, there you go. Well, doctor, thank yeah. you for calling in. Thank you. It's nice to have oh, someone sure. who is an ethicist and a, a medical practitioner to... Because I try to be ethical, but I, I of course, I, I'm not a medical person. I just come from a long line of, of committed hypochondriacs. So there you go. Oh, there so, you go. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> yes, it does. All right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks so much for calling in, doctor. Sure. God bless you. You're welcome. Okay. Thanks. Do we have a minute yet, dear voice in my head? Richard, quick call, Richard. We got a minute. What can I do for you? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. What What can I do for you? Yes. I I was curious, of, uh, Father. You know, when when you're in wartime, and uh, you know your your buddies or your your fellow soldiers are dropping left and right, and and somebody yeah. wants to be baptized, and you don't have water. Uh, are, is somebody able to, because, and they have the will, they, the, the desire to be baptized, Do, is somebody able to baptize them with uh, spit? Yes. Spit is water. Spit will do in an emergency. I know that sounds gross, but yes, it is, it is uh, of course, a last-ditch thing to, you know, take the, 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 the moisture from your mouth. It's It's almost all water, so... Yes. Well, that's an interesting way to end the show. So uh, I'm sure Drew will uplift, <laughs> you know, we're talking about death and spit. Oh, it's, uh, and still, we're still laughing. Oh, let's stay tuned for Drew.